Hello, and welcome to another edition of Truth and Rhythm. This is the show that gets deep in the pocket with contemporary music's foremost masters of the groove. I am Scott Dr. G. Skolfi, musicologist and author of Everything is on the One, the first guide of funk. If you don't have your copy, get on over to Amazon and pick one up. You'll be glad you did. Whether you're watching this video version or listening to the audio podcast version on iTunes and other leading providers, I thank you very much, as always, for your continued interest and support. Speaking of which, subscribe. If you haven't already done so, be sure to subscribe to the Funkin' Stuff channel on YouTube. That's where Truth and Rhythm resides. Tell friends, tell family, we need that support. Thank you. This episode features a leading contributor to the sound of Philadelphia who lent his considerable keyboard composing, producing, and arranging skills to dozens of top recording artists as well as released several albums of his own. I'm speaking of none other than Dexter Wansell. He got into showbiz at an early age for several years, working backstage as an errand boy at Philadelphia's Uptown Theater, where stars from James Brown to the Isley Brothers to comedians like Flip Wilson would do their thing. As a teen, he and his best friend Stanley Clark formed their bands together, their first bands together. Wenzel's early professional work included working with Bunny Siegler and Instant Funk before he went on to join Philadelphia International Records, where he worked with a slew of artists and hit records. They included Phyllis Hyman, MFSB, Teddy Pendergrass, The Jacksons, Patti LaBelle, The Jones Girls, Evelyn Champagne King, Lou Rawls, Grover Washington Jr., The Stylistics, The OJs, Billy Paul, Jerry Butler, Pieces of a Dream, and many more. Wenzel wrote the Jones Girls' 1981 number one R&B hit, Nights Over Egypt, and Patti LaBelle's 1983 chart topper, If Only You Knew. Among the hits he oversaw while serving as A&R director for Philadelphia International Records from 1978 to 1980 was McFadden and Whitehead's Ain't No Stopping Us Now. Meanwhile, Wenzel put out four albums of his own in the 1970s. They were Life on Mars, What the World is Coming to, Voyager and Time is Slipping Away. These eclectic but captivating records thematically reflected Wenzel's fascination with the cosmos and were full of compelling R&B, jazz, and funk, sometimes in the same track. Aside from some of the title tracks, other songs and performances on those LPs included You Can't Be What You Want to Be, Disco Lights, First Light of the Morning, All Night Long, Time is the Teacher, Funk Attack, one for the Road, It's Been Cool, and the Quiet Storm classic, Sweetest Pain. While he only released two more albums in the 1980s, Wenzel continued to contribute to others' recordings. Embraced by the hip-hop community, his records would go on to be sampled more than 1,000 times. In more recent times, Wenzel and his wife Judith created the show Sounds of Philadelphia that includes stories and live performances. In this in-depth interview, when Sale reminisces about working around the black music and comedic stars of the late 1950s and early 1960s, forging his musical skills as a cellist and in middle school being in bands with Stanley Clark, becoming a Philly music studio fixture for many of the finest recording artists of the 1970s, recording his own ambitious albums, his affinity for space and the universe, indelible memories from the studio on stage, and full circle to where he finds himself today. Let's check in with Philly's spaceman, 
an undeniable talent whose star should twinkle as brightly as any amid the galaxy of super talent with which he was associated. Enjoy. Hey, I'm delighted to welcome to the Truth and Rhythm Mothership a key figure in shaping R&B sound of Philadelphia with Philadelphia International Records, as well as an important recording artist in his own right, who also contributed keyboards, production, arranging, composing, and more to an overwhelming list of leading acts. Mr. Dexter Wanzel, how are you? Hi, Scott, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. Thank you so much for coming on and spending time with Truth and Rhythm. Thank you for having me on Truth and Rhythm. Now, where are you coming to us from today? I'm coming to you from my home in Elverson, Pennsylvania. Ah, um, how far is, is that closer to Philly or Pittsburgh? Yeah, it's about, no, it's closer to Philly. It's about 60 miles from Philadelphia. All right. Is the winter being kind to you? Oh, well, you know, we have our ups and downs, you know, up here. I'm in the hills, so there's, there's often a lot of wetness and snow. Yeah, yeah. Well, as I was telling you before we came on air, I'm a big fan going back to, uh, you know, the 70s uh, heyday and, you know, all those great Philadelphia records and also your solo records. So it's a delight and thrill to have you on the program. Thank you again. I'm glad to be here. Excellent. Ready to get rolling? Sure. All right. Well, you know, I usually kick this off uh, asking, you know, where you're from originally and how did you first get into music, Dexter? Well, I'm from, I grew up between Philadelphia and Lewis, Delaware. And how I got into music initially was at the age of eight years old. Um, my stepfather, Clinton Woods, who was the brother of Georgie Woods, took me to the Uptown Theater in Philadelphia, where within a week or two, I became one of their little backstage gophers, you know, errand boys. And so I got to work for all the artists that came through the Uptown um, as their gopher, going for coffee and sandwiches and getting their clothes out the cleaners. I did that from 19... 58, end of 58, going into 59 to 1963-64. And so I worked all the shows at the Uptown uh, as a gopher. I worked the very first Motortown review there. I think that was like in 61 or 62. I worked all the King Records tours, which featured James Brown and, and, and other great acts. And um, I worked the Ike and Tina Turner a show and review and all the local shows that Georgie Woods, who was my uh, stepfather's brother, had at the Uptown. I also worked the Jimmy Bishop shows and the jazz shows um, by Lord Fauntleroy. And most of the shows at the Uptown would last for 10 to 12 days. So once the artists got there, you know, we stayed a long time, you know, um, and I stayed with them. <laughs> Who, who impressed you the most that you had seen throughout that experience? Um, well, there were many acts that would come through that were very, very good. Um, I kind of like the older acts because, especially the com comedy acts, like, like um, um, I would have to say like a, a Flip Wilson and George Kirby and Pigmeat Markham. Uh, Moms Mabley and, you know, acts like that. I, I was, I love the comedy. I guess I grew up laughing. But the other artists I liked early on were like the Isley Brothers. 
and oh, and and their guitar player was Jimi Hendrix, and he was really shy, and so he would hang out after you know in between shows when people would go out to get something to eat or whatever he would hang out backstage and i would hang out with him and he he was a wonderful guy real shy but really nice and um i also would hang out a lot with um the the motown people you know when they would come through with their tours because that was a lot of people motown had like five six acts including uh, little Stevie Wonder on that first Motortown review, and I would hold his hand in between uh, back in the wings while uh, uh, Shorty Long was on stage, and then Shorty Long would come out and get him and take him and put him behind the drums. That's how Little Stevie Wonder would start his show back then in '61, '62 was playing the drums. Then he would come out play the harmonica. Then he would do fingertips, you know. So uh, I, I loved all the artists that came through. Um, uh, the uh, music director there was a guy named Doc Bagby, and he showed me my first chords on the organ. I guess I was nine or ten. He started showing me chords on the organ. He was sort of a mentor, you know, and he kind of created a sound. He actually, um, I think he created that rockabilly sound because he always had that guitar. And, and um, I know uh, as I got older, they were telling me how... Um, um, he he uh, sued Bill Haley and the Comets, actually. He sued them uh, for Rock Around the Clock. Um, he said it was his music, and um, I don't know if he won or not. <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, Doc Bagby uh, was a great mentor. Uh, Dave Babe Cortez on the uh, organ was, uh, would show me chords, and um, it was just great. Uh, the artists, I, I, the artists that... Um, Really, really stick in my mind right now. Brooke Benton, he was one of the nicest people you could you could imagine. How his voice sound is what he was like as a person. Uh, and him and Dinah Washington would perform at the Uptown together a lot. And they had a record. Um, can't remember. Can't remember. Um, uh, you, uh, you Got What It Takes. Something like that. <laughs> that they would perform on the stage. And... Um, they would kiss each other on the <laughs> at the end of the record on the stage. And that was always fun. You know, um, there were other great acts that came through. I mean, James Brown, I used to hold his towels in the wings. You know, he would dance off stage, grab a towel and wipe his face off and throw it back in mine. <laughs> so, uh, um, um, and and other acts. I mean, uh, the King Records tours had had great acts. There was a one guy and his group, the guy that wrote the Twists. Um, he had Chub a group. I'm sorry. Well, Chubby Checker performed it. I don't know who wrote it. Yeah, no, the guy that wrote it and put it out for Hank Ballard and the oh, yeah. Midnighters. He put that record out like a year before. It's the same record that Chubby Checker did. I mean, they they almost copied everything, but Hank Ballard and the Midnighters. Hank Ballard wrote the twist and the Midnighters would perform it. And then Chubby Checker, like a year later at Cameo Parkway, um, um, did a version of it, which like became this monster. But to this day, I, I still prefer Hank Ballard <laughs> and their version of it. He was really good uh, to work with. Um, and there were other um, tours that would come through um, and artists that would come through. Um, uh, as a kid, I worked with Patti LaBelle and the Bluebells, uh, and they had a record out called Down the Aisle, 
But before that, they were singing a song called I Sold My Heart to the Junk Man. But the voices were different. So I don't really think it was really them because when I listen to the record to this day, it's like, that ain't, that ain't Patty. <laughs> you know, so I don't know how that worked out. Um, but anyway, yeah. And, and of course, uh, the impressions. Kurt, oh, Curtis Mayfield was wonderful. I mean, he was so wonderful. And when Jerry left the group and those two brothers that were in the group left the group, I think he actually just dug in deep and did wonderful things after that. You know, his first release after Jerry Butler left, I, um, uh, that he came to the Uptown to do was Gypsy Woman. I think that was it anyway. But mm. anyway, yeah, I loved working with him. And there was a time uh, later on in, while I was, you know, being a producer, arranger and stuff, he came and met with me and wanted me to work uh, with him at Kurtom, which I couldn't do because I was still signed at Philly International. I, I used to have that problem with a number of people. Like uh, after I did the arrangements for the Let's Get Serious album for Jermaine, he actually came to my house and asked me to sign the Motown. I said, I can't do it because I'm still signed at Philly International. I think that made them angry. I think that... <laughs> You know, but who knows, you know, but they're used anyway, to getting their way back to the uptown. I'll tell you a little story. So when I first started working at the uptown, it was really cold and everything. And uh, Herb Staten would have me walk this woman. She used to come see um, little Anthony and Imperial. She would ask me to walk this woman over to the VPA club, which was like a couple of doors down where she was performing. And. And he and he would ask me to all when she was in the wings, he would always tell me to now go over there and stand by Lady Day and keep your mouth shut. Because <laughs> I didn't know who she was at the time, you know, but it, it, uh, some months later, you know, I learned that she had passed away and everybody was talking about it and they were in shock, you know, because uh, she was really a great singer. She never performed at the Uptown, but she performed at the club that was a couple of doors down from the uptown and other people I used to work with. Um, I, I mentioned that Jerry Butler had left the impressions. Well, uh, he actually showed up at Philly International Records and did some hit albums with Gamble and Huff and continued to work there. And one day Kenny walked him into my office after I had signed there and said, uh, you're going to be working with this young fella here. And, and Jerry looked at me and he said, Dexter. <laughs> He said, you still ain't combing your hair? Because <laughs> I used to be kind of, you know, I was a wild child. And I used to run around and everything like that for them, you know. But that was actually how I got started was my gopher years, my um, errand boy years uh, at the Uptown Theater, working for all those wonderful uh, recording artists that, that came through. That's wow. How wow. Those, those memories and stories, incredible, Dexter. Well, it's, it's part of who I am. And Georgie Woods was one of the really good uh, DJs in Philly. You know, uh, he had a show at WDAS and he had a show at WHAT at one point uh, in Philadelphia. And, and if he played your record, it, it was a hit, you know, and, and a lot of people wanted him to play their records. So they would come to Philly and they would get on that stage at the Uptowns and, and hang out for almost two weeks and uh, get their records played, too. You know, so the Uptown was great. The Uptown was, you know, like a tow bar theater. Um, they used to call them Chitlin, uh, Chitlin Circuit Theaters, like uh, the Regal in Chicago, um, um, the uh, Apollo in New York, 
the uh, Howard and DC and so on and so forth, you know. So it, it was good. And it was a great place for many uh, black artists to perform because back in the late 50s and the early 60s, of course, segregation still ran rampant and there were plenty of places that they couldn't play, you know. So having theaters that opened up like that was a wonderful thing, even to this day, you know. People still, not at the Uptown, but people still perform at the um, Apollo in New York and they just revamped um, the Howard in Washington, D.C. So you mentioned about being shown a few chords and stuff. How did you progress musically from that? Did you have any training or you got more mentorship or what happened? Well, I, I um, once I got into junior high school, um, I took up the flute and the cello uh, because the music was offered at Gillespie Junior High in Philadelphia. And once I started playing the cello, I kind of got good at it and I started uh, taking classes um, at other places too. My teacher, Mary Colbert at Gillespie was a very good teacher. And she would, once I started to learn how to read for the cello, um, she, she would teach me um, how to write notes. In other words, composition, you know. Uh, and then she sent me to settlement music school in junior high school where I started learning theory, harmony and composition. And, um, and that carried me through into uh, high school. When I was in high school, I was in the orchestra, you know, playing cello in high school. And I also was playing um, cello, backseat cello at places uh, like um, the Cherry Hill Symphony. You know, I was in the all city um, junior and senior orchestra in Philadelphia as a cellist. And, um, but things altered and I started playing piano once I learned how to um, read for piano and um, everything like that. But um, and me and my best friend had our first little groups together in high school where he's the bass player, Stanley Clark, who to this day still does wonderful things, you know, playing live. And of course, all the film scores he's done. Um, and uh, actually, we just went to our high school reunion together <laughs> a few months ago. Wow, he's one of my all-time favorite bass players. Oh yeah, Stanley's great. Um, I actually took him to New York, after I got out of the Army, I took him to his uh, audition in New York with Joe Henderson. That was his first jazz audition and the drummer happened to be Lenny White and they hooked up at that point. This was in 1971 and they hooked up at that point and he introduced Stanley to Chick Corea and Chick and, and Stanley became a member of um, of their group. Um, return to Forever. Yeah, Return to Forever, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That that now that's a group for you. That you yeah, not bad. <laughs> so yes. um when 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 did the moment come that you were like, uh music is what I want to pursue for my life? After I got out the army. Uh, I had some trouble in high school and it was, uh, let me put it this way, it was either wind up in juvie or join the army. So the day I turned 17, I was on my way to Fort Bragg, North Carolina for basic training. And um, uh, what I did in the army, um, let me put it to you this way, um, you'd have to have crypto access. <laughs> and so when I got out the army, um, 
I, all I wanted to do was, was music. That's all I wanted to do. So, because, you know, all that theory, harmony and composition that I had learned at settlement and that, and I had started taking master classes at Curtis the, the, uh, the month before I got in trouble. I was, uh, after I got out of high school, I was supposed to go to Curtis and that didn't work out. Um, so I, I wanted to do music and I wanted to write. And um, so I started working with little bands out there like Instant Funk and um, the, uh, the, the two brothers, um, Roland and, and Carl Chambers would see me. I would go to Sigma and set, by 72, I was sitting in Sigma trying to audition as a, p a piano player for sessions, which I did on occasions, credited and uncredited. But one day in Sigma, they said to me, do you know anything about the Putney synthesizer? And uh, I said, sure, but of course <laughs> I didn't, you know, <laughs> but I went up and I got a sound out of it. It was a peg synthesizer where you move the pegs around, you know, uh, put in different holes to change uh, the sine waves to the oscillators and, and uh, ADSRs and all that stuff, you know. So uh, I was doing that and, 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 and getting $50 a session, which was pretty good for me, you know. Um, and then Carl and Roland Chambers came through here and me played the piano one day and asked me to join their group. So in 72, I joined their group. And in 73, we did our first and only album at Philly International. And that's how I met Gamble and Huff. And that album was called Yellow Sunshine. The group was Yellow Sunshine. And it didn't last long. I think we lasted about a year. And But by then, I had started working with Bunny Sigler. And the group that was backing him was Instant Funk. So Instant Funk asked me to become their piano player, which I did. You know, I started working with them and I started working with Bunny Sigler. Uh, Bunny Sigler had two acts that he was doing at the same time and he needed horn arrangements for, but he um, didn't have the budget to call in some, like someone like a Bobby Martin or, uh, you know, somebody like that. So I started writing all his horn arrangements for his productions on Johnny Nash and Carl Carlton which kind of opened up the door for me to become a member of MFSB because Bobby Martin heard the horn arrangements and said, listen, I want you to come play keyboards for MFSB, which I did. I started playing keyboards for MFSB. And once I had signed to Philly International, Bobby Martin had left. So he was no longer the live conductor for MFSB. So uh, Don Ronaldo, the contractor and, and first violinist for MFSB, asked me to be there music director and I, I was their music director for a few years, you know, before they basically disbanded from live performances because it was 30, 38, sometimes 40 pieces on the road, you know, and, uh, and people couldn't afford, <laughs> promoters couldn't afford them anymore, you know, it was just, it, it, but it was a wonderful experience, you know, for me to be able to do that. Well, it sounds, it sounds, uh, Dexter, like just pieces really fell in place uh, for you. Um, there must have been something about, you know, your attitude or your approach or your can-do spirit that, that made that happen. What would you attribute that to? Well, I just loved music, you know. I loved music. I loved, um, I was honored and, and I'm a fan. The Uptown made me a fan. So to be a part of the music of so many of the great artists and be a member of so many of these wonderful groups was just 
I, you know, maybe they didn't know it, but I was just giggling with, uh, with pride. <laughs> yeah, look at me. I'm with Yellow Sunshine. I'm with Instant Funk. I'm with Bunny Sigler. I'm writing arrangements for Bunny Sigler. You know, so it was like, <laughs> it was like, it was like that. That's how I felt, and 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 I have always felt about music. Um, um, in, you know, and then once I got started writing at Philly International, writing, arranging, writing compositions and arranging and producing, uh, I still kept my synths with me. You know, Al Perlman actually gave me, well, they didn't give me, but he allowed me to get a ARP 2600 in 74 and, and pay for it over time. And I started using that on sessions as a synthesis. And I, I was it like about 20 grand at that time or how much? Oh, no, no, no. They, they weren't that much. I think they were like six, seven thousand. OK, to get an ARP. Maybe the ARP 2600 um, metal one, I think, was like that, you know. But at, at Sigma, I would help. I would do the Putney. And then on a couple of occasions, Bob Moog's people came through and I would help them uh, set up their modules, you know, because back then everything was the module until Al Perlman created that ARP. 2600 metal which was like in a suitcase and all the modules were already locked together in the suitcase you know what i'm saying so all you had to do was use the cords to pull it put put everything together when when before that the moves you had to set the modules up and then plug them each in um electrically and then use the cords you see what i'm saying but anyway um uh, so yeah so i couldn't do what um Bobby Martin, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm sorry. Um, uh, yeah, well, as an arranger, I couldn't do what Bobby Martin had done come 75, 76. All those great hits he wrote, Richard Rome and uh, Bobby Martin and Jack Faith, and they had, and especially Tom Bell, who was, it, it was Gamble, Huff, and Bell. On the building, the door said GHB. You know, it was Gamble, Huff, and Bell. And they had written by 75 and 76. I think that they had done as good as it was ever going to be done. So what I did when I started writing arrangements and orchestrations was include synthesis, you know, which I hope would at least allow me to continue to work there because I was bringing something, you know, different to their platform. So talk a little bit about, I mean, that time in the early 70s was such a landmark breakthrough period for expanding the palette of keyboard sounds. And, uh, you know, I had uh, Robert Margoloff on this program not too long ago talking about Tonto and Stevie Wonder and all that. Can you speak a little bit too about that incredible metamorphosis that occurred with keyboards? And, um, you know, did that turn you on? Was that something that really excited you as well? Um, let, me, let me tell you a little story. Okay, back in 76, I, of course I was using all the uh, keyboards. If I, if I heard a sound, I would go out and get the keyboard. And sometimes some of the keyboards only had a few sounds that really were, meant something to me, you know? Especially the um, uh, synthesis companies with the uh, keyboards that had their presets already in them, you know? Uh, of course I would work with all of them. Um, I, I liked them all. Uh, Moog finally created the Mini Moog, which was still um, poly, um, uh, which was still single note, you know, until the other keyboards came out that were multi note, you know. Um, and um, so I, I enjoyed them. Um, I liked them. I thought they brought something 
to the plate, especially when funk kind of kicked in, the mini move really became important because instead of the bass players playing the bass lines, the mini move became the bass for tons of funk records. You know what I'm saying? And the alternative sounds, instead of a rock guitar or, or a blues guitar sound, the uh, wave, the sine wave of many moves and, and um, other keyboards uh, became um, the ARP and the, uh, became um, the sounds that a lot of uh, funk producers were using instead of live musicians, you know. And uh, Stevie Wonder uh, had given me his drum machine he was in philly and he asked me can you make my drum machine work and i said what's the drum machine <laughs> and this was like in 75 or 76 but anyway he had a drum machine called the lynn walcott and what had happened was that it was all of the uh, solid state logic um uh, little capsules or, or you know um um plugins uh, modules Modules, yeah. The little modules were loose, so I would go in and push them down, take them out, put them back in, take them out, put them back in, and I got I got the Lynn Walcott uh, to uh, to work. But um, um, and then all of a sudden, Lynn Walcott went out of business, and I asked Stevie what was going on. He said, "Well, Lynn's partner don't want to be a part of it." And then, like a year later, Lynn put out a, a new drum machine. Uh, that became very popular um, in in uh, music all around, from pop music to R and B to funk to soul. That Lynn drum machine became really important, you know. So yeah, I could see uh, what was the uh, synth keyboards were doing. They were bringing different sounds, fresh sounds. Don't forget, there was only grand and organ for. Uh, over a hundred years that were being used on records, you know, as far as keyboards. So with the new synthesis, all the Oberheims and the Moogs and the Arps and the Fairlights and the Yamahas, and they all became very important, you know, to uh, bringing fresh and new music um, sounds. And that's, that's kind of how I view it. Yeah. Dexter, Talk to me about the sound of Philadelphia. You know, what were the qualities that made it distinctive and unique? And what was that just seen like during that era? Well, I think the sound of Philadelphia goes back a long ways. I think that it is rooted in a lot of different things. You know, of course, gospel music that expanded. When um, I worked at the Uptown, there, there was a, a gospel group called the Clark Sisters. And we, you heard them saying, you heard R&B, <laughs> you know? So I, I think, and doo-wop, of course, as far as the Philly sound is concerned, I, I think was very important, especially early on for uh, a lot of the groups that were there. But there was an arm, there was a soul kind of transition from doo-wop to soul sounds. Um, in Philadelphia, I think that first probably happened with... Um, Tommy and uh, um, and the group he worked with, um, uh, the Delphonics. I think it kind of happened there. And I mean, if you listen to their first recordings, I think that kind of, and, and then Gamble and Huff with the Intruders. It wasn't doo-wop, you know what I mean? It was, it was a change. 
It, it, it kind of like was a new influence. And I think they were influenced by, by the sounds that were starting to come out of Memphis and especially Detroit, you know? Um, so um, I, I think that doo-wop had seen its heyday and the transition happened into soul groups that became very important because they were taking the harmonic structures into a different, uh, along a different path into a different era, you know? And I, I think that's what Kenny and Leon and uh, other people, Philly Groove Records and um, Gamble Records and Bell Records, I think they took advantage of that and, and created a sound that was very distinct. You know, Tom Bell became a very important as far as arranging and helped bring arranging those styles of arranging into prominence. I mean, what he did was his arranging, especially on that first stylistics album, you know, was more orchestral than, than uh, you know, people as far as R&B is concerned than people had really heard before, you know. And he always told me that um, uh, he wanted to be like the sole version of this arranger, producer, writer, um, Burt Bacharach. He wanted to be like the soul verse. <laughs> and if you listen to his arrangements, you can hear a lot of that. You know, you can hear a lot of the Burt Bacharach um, influence in, in a lot of his arrangements, you know. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that um, that they really uh, found a path that they followed for a decade. You know, and then things started to change, you know, and. And fortunately for someone like me, the changes really helped get me in place and, and helped get me work as far as a producer, um, because I certainly couldn't do or wouldn't try to do, even though I've written a few, done a few productions and compositions and orchestrations that I kind of, in, in a way, wanted to honor Tommy and, and um, I wanted to honor um, uh, Bobby, you know, Bobby Martin. But for the most part, like I said, I, I would generally try different things. I think um, that's a great description of uh, Burke Backrack kind of meets Motown, um, you know, for that sound. And then disco came in too and certainly affected it as well. Yeah, um, well, that first, uh, that, I think the first uh, disco record of great merit and influence is uh, TSOP. The, uh, Gamble and Huff had written that for uh, for um, Don Cornelius's Soul Train show, but he didn't want it called the Soul Train, so they called it the Sound of Philadelphia. But the Three Degrees were singing on it, and and they they sang Soul Train on on the record. But that Earl Young um, hi hat, uh, I think, really shaped a, a lot of the disco music. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, so. Dexter, could you step me up to um, your first record came out in 76. So are you talking about a Dexter Wansell record? Yeah, your first okay. under your name, first one came out Life, uh, Life on Mars in 76. What are some notable records that you have been involved with for others before your first Dexter Wansell album? Oh, the Billy Paul Let Him In album. I did most of that album. And that was in 75. I did most of, as a producer, writer, arranger. I did most of the Letterman album. I did that Philadelphia Freedom album on um, 
MFSB in 75 with um, Philadelphia Freedom and Morning Tears. And I did another song on there. I can't remember the name of it. Um, when Your Love Is Gone. Um, the the D.D. Sharp album uh, I worked on. Um, D.D. I actually played synthesizer for Bobby Martin, the previous, uh, the 74 album. Um, I worked on some of Bunny's earlier albums. I worked on um, um, a, a lot of a lot of the different artists, and I was writing and producing and arranging for them before Life on Mars came out. And Life on Mars sat in the can for over a year because. Even though I was writing and producing and stuff like that, I was doing it independently. And they wanted me to sign to the company, you know. <laughs> and I was like, oh, wow, you know. So I think I'm making more money just being independent. <laughs> uh, but anyway, I finally did sign and, and they, they put the album out. They put it out. And what, what inspired you to do your own thing under your own name? Was it always your intention? and how did you decide on the ingredients sonically that would represent Dexter Wenzel? Well, I was always an amateur astronomer. Part of my life, I lived in um, in Lewis, Delaware on a farm. And, and the skies were wide open, the flatlands down there in, in Lewis, Rehoboth, Delaware. And I would go to the ocean and sometimes we would stay out there at night. And one night as a kid, I saw a meteor shower. Changed my life forever. To this day, I go out to look at the various media showers. Like a week and a half, two weeks ago, I went out to see the Geminids and it was too cloudy. Um, I, and I just love, I started stargazing and reading the books and I got tel uh, telescopes and still have a telescope downstairs. And that's where my head became because I could not realize the universe and its infinity you know what i'm saying it, it like inspires me to this day to know that there's a reality that's infinite and i often wonder about scientists when they talk about um that you know and they have no clue <laughs> and this this i am absolutely certain of the more pictures they take of the universe per se, the more they learn that they, they have no clue. And even, even when they talk about dimensions, now scientists are saying there's 11 dimensions. And I'm saying that we only live in four, you know, so to th that's what inspires me. And that's what to this day um, inspires me to make music because I feel that, that, that this whole universe thing is something creative. God created this universe and God in the universe to me are one. And creativity is a reflection of that. And I'm to be a part of that is just, I don't know. I, I don't know how to put it in the words. Uh, it's mind blowing and overwhelming and thrilling. And <laughs> those are good words. <laughs> yeah. I feel you. I feel you. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit about all of your uh, albums, but um, Life on Mars, that title track was fantastic. Um, you can be what you want to be was a great track as well. Um, I tend to gravitate more towards the upbeat stuff. That's just me. Um, but, um, you know, you had an interesting blend throughout all, all of your albums of R and B jazz funk. 
how did that come to be? You know, how did all those influences crystallize for you? Well, you know, early on a- after they heard Life on Mars, they put it out, but they said, look, you should try to like stick with one thing. But I'm not that. I'm an experimenter. You know, I experiment with sounds. Everything I've ever done is different. You know, it's not going to sound the same. You know, if you listen to each and every song, it's uniquely different, you know. But that's because of me. Now, as far as um, what pe- what record companies look for in, uh, back then in record sales, they look for a specific sound for each artist and everything. And sometimes I would walk that path with various artists. But then and again, sometimes I wouldn't, you know, like with Lou Rawls, I would kind of walk that path, you know, but with like the Jones girls and myself, nah, <laughs> you know, I would try different things, you know, um, Billy Paul, I even kind of tried to do Billy different, you know, in some cases, some ways I stuck to the, you know, to the you know, to the, the, the template. Yeah. Right. <laughs> but no, I, I, I would, I would experiment and, you know, but they kept, I think to keep me producing and writing and arranging for all the other artists, I, th- I think they kept, they would say, well, let him experiment on, on, on albums that he does, you know, <laughs> get it out of your system. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it never, it will never get out of my system. You know? And you, you had a instant, the instant funk guys were on that first record, right? Yeah, I, I was, I was on uh, as an arranger. Their first record out of uh, Philly International was "Float Like a Butterfly," so I arranged it for them. Um, but we kind of parted ways after they went uh, to South Soul. I think it was that they went to. Yeah. Or, yeah, I think that's where they went. South Soul. Yeah. And um, of course, they had a great big success there. Um, but yeah, 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 I worked with them. Um, um, you know, I, I, I loved working with all the different artists. You know, it was, it's an honor. Not just the artists, but the musicians, the string players, uh, the great Don Ronaldo, who was the contractor of MFSB, and um, uh, all of uh, the great the keyboard players that I got to work with, you know, uh, I got to work with, uh, one day I did a live session, uh, with all the original members of MFSB, which included Baker Harrison Young, uh, and Bobby Eli and TJ Tyndall and, you know, and everybody, um, um, uh, Larry Washington on percussion, you know, and, and that was, uh, this is where I belong on Billy Paul. And when it's live, you don't do overdubs. Everything is cut one time right there in place, you know? So I had to write an, uh, an orchestration, a rhythm chart, uh, a background vocal parts and everybody and, and Billy's parts. And we were all in the studio. We count down and we all do it at once. And that's how it was done back in the old days. Of course, you would do it over and over until it sounded right. But that's how it was done back in the uh, you know 40s and the 50s and you know the 60s and then by the 60s you started doing overdubs you know that means you went in you cut the rhythm first then you did the lead vocals then you added backgrounds then you added strings and horns and then you mixed but a live uh, take was all that in one so dexter your your second record was what the world is coming to and um 
you know, that was a great title track again, real sophisticated R&B jazz kind of flavor. Um, the song Disco Lights you had on there, but to me, it was more funk than disco. Um, First Light of, of Morning was a really cool funk instrumental. What do you remember about that record? Well, it was good. A lot of experimentation. Disco Lights, uh, I had run out of the budget. I didn't have good budgets for my albums, you know. So I, I had to piecemeal a lot of stuff. And Disco Lights, I was at, excuse me, hold on. Sorry about that. Okay. So with What the World is Coming to, I had a kind of you know, limited budgets for all of my album. And that one, I had kind of used a lot of the budget with writing arrangements um, and using the full orchestra, you know, uh, especially like on uh, What the World is Coming to and uh, First Light of the Morning, you know. Um, this, so Disco Lights was actually the last song I did. And I didn't have any money. I couldn't pay musicians or anybody. So me and Jay Mark went into the studio one night and the next morning there it was, you know, I cut all, cut all that you hear. I did the drums, I did all the keyboards and we experimented with sonic sounds and um, everything like that. And I did, used a lot of synthesis on that one. But I, sometimes I had to do that. I did that with the Jones girls a couple of times, you know, where I had to go in and cut stuff because I didn't have good budgets you know improvise necessity mother of invention right absolutely <laughs> um what what would it have been like to be with dexter wanzel in studio during that era you know were you a taskmaster? you know how did you sort of direct things and what were you like in the studio if if we weren't laughing i wasn't happy no, I was not the serious dude. I'm sorry. I, I'm I'm not a serious guy. I, I'm serious about it being the best we can make it, but let's have fun while we make it, you know? <laughs> so yeah, we would go out and hang out and, and have fun and, and then come back into the studio, especially when we were doing vocals, like, oh my God, me and Teddy. Woo! Me and Teddy would go to the uh, fantasy lounge across the street and hang out and talk about what we were going to do and then go back in the studio and do it, you know, have some fun, you know, enjoy life, you know, and that's, um, that's kind of where I, I, I am as a, as a, as a producer. Um, I'm serious about it being the best that it can be, but let's have fun doing that. So, so that's what I do. Who are some of your, uh, inspirations during that era in terms of your approach to sound and keyboards and, you know, production? Um, I didn't really have too many in inspirations during that era. era. Um, I, well, of course, I, I loved all the keyboard players, you know, I loved all the arrangers that were out there. I mean, the Motown arrangers, people like David Van De Peet and Gene Page, as far as that, that arranging, kind of arranging, I, I certainly admire, you know, I don't think that I really try to mimic them or, but, you know, um, synthesis, of course, I, I loved everybody, but there weren't many of us doing synthesis back in the early 70s, especially. I think there was like a Walter Carlos, uh, um, Dick Hyman, myself, um, 
a few other people. There were some early albums with Stevie had an album with synthesis on it early on, I think in 74 or something like that. And of course, Herbie's Headhunters, you know, I, I like that album. So, um, yeah, Music of My Mind and Headhunters, I, I, I guess I could say that they were pretty much in my head, you know, because I really liked them both, you know. Um, but um, what, so what about? I guess I was just being more creative than being influenced. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. What what was your uh, compositional process like? Would you get ideas in the middle of the night and jot them down, or how did you generally come up with your composing? Well, it really depended. Uh, I would uh, on what I was doing and who I was working with. You know, um, I would sit at the piano to write melodies and, and chords for a song that I would then put lyrics to early on. But fortunately, I was able to talk a young lady named Cynthia Biggs, who was a journal student, uh, to, to help me write words and take that because I was slow writing words. I mean, I did it early on the first couple of years, all those songs with the words I wrote, you know, but hope, thankfully she was able to um, help me with that. And we did that for years. We teamed up and wrote songs together for years after that. Um, um, yeah, I'd sit at the piano. I, I'd write chords and melodies. And, and if it came together, um, then I would complete the song by adding lyrics. Thank you. 